there, Hannah. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Sorry. I was totally finishing lunch. I was thinking, man, it hasn't started yet. I should be good. And I've got like a whole bowl of cinnamon toast crunch just sitting right next to me. Oh, just could not be less of an issue. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> cool. Feel free to munch away. Wonderful. I'm sure your listeners were going to love that ASMR of me chewing <laughs> soggy yeah. toast crunch and drinking iced coffee out of a beer pint. <laughs> I've yet to introduce ASMR to the podcast. So this is, I'm glad we finally have the opportunity right. now. This is, a, this is a good one. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. What happened to you? Well, thank you so much for having me. I really wanted to talk about this particular instance that has kind of shaped really most of my adult life. When I was 20 years old, I was a senior, or sorry, 21 at this point. Numbers are so hard. 21, I had just turned 21. I was going into my senior year of college and I've always been very young for my grades. So I had turned 21 over the summer and going into my senior year was the first time that I was going to be able to not even just go to the bars, but really kind of take part in some of these upperclassmen traditions that were so important. And one of them is this tradition called breakfast club. And you wake up before home football games and you dress up, you're up at five in the morning and you are drinking like there is no tomorrow. You are drinking like someone is coming to kill you in war. Like, I mean, it is insane (laughs) and no one makes it to the football game, but I was so excited to go to my first one of these because I had been watching, you know, for the entire past year, all of my friends go and I never could because they were always so strict. It didn't matter if you had a fake or not. It was always so strict. You couldn't get in. So I was so excited to go. And I remember this day because it was in September and it was the first home football game and it was blazing hot, even at five in the morning when we had all gotten up and me and two of my other friends, two of my guy friends, we were dressed as dads on vacation. So we were dressed as tourists, so khaki shorts, Hawaiian shirts, the fanny packs. And I remember we took a photo, the three of us together, like holding a map, pretending we were like looking for the bars. And I posted it at like six in the morning because everyone else was awake. Everyone else wanted to see what everyone's costume was. Within an hour and a half, I was already like blacked out. And the last thing I fully remember was we were at a bar and I was drinking vodka red bulls which is a horrible idea no matter what you do and i think i was on probably my sixth or seventh and the room kind of starts to fade in and everything goes black the next thing i know i am waking up and i am in my best guy friend at the time i'm in his bed i have no clothes on he's right there next to me he has no clothes on i'm like i know that this is bad i don't know what happened i kind of look and i have like scratches on my body and i have scratches on my face like clearly like marks of someone that did not want to be in that situation. I looked over and I and he's just sleeping like nothing happened. There's nothing wrong with him. And so I wake him I wake him up and I'm like, "What did you do? Why did you do this? What what happened?" And he isn't telling me. He isn't telling me. All he's doing is he's going, "I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." So putting two and two together, I pretty much figured out. And so I grab my stuff. I I grab all the clothes I have. I don't even know if I grabbed all of my clothes or not. And I run out of the house. I'm still still dressed as a tourist pretty drunk and I don't know where I am. There's like no sense of direction. The entire world is spinning. Eventually I get to this other friend of mine who happened to be kind of like my friends with benefits at the time. And I walked right into the house and he looked at me and immediately just knew something was wrong and kind of grabbed me and like took me into his room and sat me down and was like, what happened? And I keep repeating, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like sick to my stomach. And eventually he calls my roommate And she comes in and I think the worst part of this was that I looked at her and the first words out of my mouth were, no one is going to believe me. And she and my friend, they both just kind of looked at me 
and they both just knew like you're right like you're right no one like no one's <laughs> yeah. going to believe you backstory on this friend is that you know at the time he was like the homecoming king you know president of his fraternity i mean incredibly popular well-known golden child of this school and i was not that at all <laughs> i was notoriously a troublemaker. I was notorious for either not being in class or being asleep in class or what, you know, I, I just, I didn't have the same reputation that he did. I was well known. I was well liked, but not in the same way that he was. I was a part of year where he wasn't. And so when I was coming with a story like this, or if I came with a story like this, who was going to believe the girl that hadn't missed a Thursday night out in four months, you know, like had yeah. it missed, you know, had or really ever her entire college career, like who was going to believe her? And I just broke down and eventually something like my roommate's mom came and my, this poor friend of mine is sitting there and all these people are in his house. Like, he's like, I have to go, like, I have to go to work. I don't know what to do. <laughs> a couple of questions. First of all, yeah, a breakfast raids is what we called them. <laughs> um, and and you, you said that you weren't allowed to go in with fakes. Our school was not like that. It was like, if you're 18, you're great. And it's such a wild concept to go from like living with your parents and like, you know, being totally dependent on these other people and not having experiences like these. I mean, we still drank in high school a bunch, but not to the same degree that you drink in college where it's like you're supervised, quote unquote, by people that are 22. And it's just an insane environment. Like experiences like this are, um, I know a lot of people who have been through similar things. What you said about your first thought being that nobody's going to believe you. It's interesting how common that thought is, regardless of the experience that you've had and the, the different justifications that we come up with for why some why we won't be believed. And that's like the first thing is like, oh, I just don't. Here's a million reasons why I shouldn't say anything, why nobody will believe me. And I feel like oftentimes people are abused or taken advantage of by people that are seemingly like couldn't do any wrong. And that always makes it so much harder. The guy who molested me was like a stand-up member of the community, very well liked. And it seems like there's a misconception that like abusers, people that take advantage of other people are always these like horrible people. And like, of course it was that person. And it is so rarely somebody that you expected to be like that. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And you know, it's still like to this day shocks me and I will see him going on in his life and nothing has happened to him. I do remember because of course that ended our friendship. I, when people kind of start, like my friends started finding out, cause I really didn't tell a lot of people. I didn't know how to tell people, but of course the word gets out and they sent him messages like, you know, how could you do this to her? What, like, why did you do this? What were you thinking? Um, because this wrecked me. I mean, my mental health was already, I was getting ready to apply to graduate school and my mental health was tanking already. I mean, and it had been a downward, downward spiral already. This is 2016, like fall of 2016. Mm -hmm. And I'd already been under so much stress from my family. Like, I didn't tell my parents. I paid, I ended up going to the emergency room because I didn't know what else to do. And I was like, I need to figure out, you know, did I get pregnant? Do I have an STD? Do I, you know, I was like, well, I got to figure something out. And I didn't know where else to go because I was in Indiana and there's not really a lot of access to anything else like that. Um, my roommate's mom convinced me to go and it had been about eight hours and I got there, I think at like 
probably like 6 p.m. that same night. I got there at, yeah, around 6 p.m. Her, she and her mom actually drove me there and then drove me back, which was really kind of them. They waited for me outside. Um, I didn't want to go. They really convinced me to go, but then I wasn't going to use my insurance because how do you explain, how do you explain that bill to your parents? This un, this, this uh, emergency room bill that's, you know, 2000, however many dollars because you didn't know where else to go. And, and the only reason my parents found out about it is because at the time I still had my old address on my license and they sent my parents a survey. How was your time <laughs> in this emergency room? And I get this phone call. I get this phone call at like two in the afternoon. And I, of course I've been drinking again. And I was so hungover, and I get this phone call from my mom and she goes, Hey, like we just got this in the mail. Why were you in the ER? And I'm thinking, well, do I lie? Or do I tell her the truth? And I took a gamble and I told her the truth. And lo and behold, she did not believe me. Mm. And I said, well, then can you not tell dad what I told you? And she goes, I can't keep this to myself. I have to tell him. And she did. I can't keep this to myself. This thing that I don't think happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the ER bill. That's what she was concerned about with the bill. Also, just what a wild, like, what is it like Uber? Like, how was your, <laughs> how was your experience? It's got like a smiley face and like a frowny face. Right, it's so exactly. silly. Your satisfaction with the ER. It was great. I found out <laughs> I was not, nor did I have an STD. Had a great day. Otherwise. Yeah. It's my go-to post-rape. Uh, it's my favorite place to go. <laughs> um, so what a. Um, uh, when you told your mom, did she like mull it over at all? Or was it like immediately like, no way that happened? And did you ask her like why she didn't believe you? Well, her first question, you know, she goes, well, were you drinking? Were you drinking? And, I, and of course I was like, well, yes, you know, I, yes, I was. And she just had this and she kind of was silent for a little bit and said, hmm, you know how moms do like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course you were, of course you were drinking. Of course that would happen when you're drinking. Which is every night in college for so many people as if you can't get raped when you're drunk. Right. Truly. And and I think she just didn't connect that. And it, it wasn't this outward. I don't believe that happened. I think it was more this very clear judgment of because you were drunk you're at fault. It is your fault that this happened to you. What uh, When you told your mom, did she like mull it over at all? Or was it like immediately like, no way that happened? And did you ask her like why she didn't believe you? Well, her first question, you know, she goes, well, were you drinking? Were you drinking? And, I, and of course I was like, well, yes, you know, I, yes, I was. And she just had this and she kind of was silent for a little bit and said, hmm, you know how moms do like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course you were, of course you were drinking. Of course that would happen when you're drinking. Which is every night in college for so many people as if you can't get raped when you're drunk. Right. Truly. And and I think she just didn't connect that. And it, it wasn't this outward. I don't believe that happened. I think it was more this very clear judgment of because you were drunk, you're at fault the incredible judgment and the lack of belief that this could have really happened to me. I think uh, it hurt me in ways that I still don't think she fully grasps. And it's taken almost five years to be able to really mend that relationship. And then further, when she told my dad 
he same reaction and he refused to talk about it. He just mm. didn't even acknowledge it. To him, it was not something that happened. It was a mistake that his drunk daughter had made. And she was having buyer's remorse and was being an idiot, you know, and. Yeah, it's interesting when I said this on the podcast before, but it, it always seems so applicable to situations like this. When people don't believe somebody that's been through something like this, uh, whatever you've been through, if people are like adamantly opposed to believing to like even considering the possibility that you're telling the truth, mm-hmm. it generally has to do with their own experiences. And it's, I mean, not to speak for your mom or dad, but maybe either they have been through something similar or know somebody that they care about who's been through something similar. And for them to acknowledge what happened to you would be them then acknowledging something that they don't want to come to terms with that's happened to them or somebody that they know in the past. And it's a frustrating thing because it's like in the moment, it it doesn't help much, but I, I feel like it can be helpful to think about that in retrospect, because it's like, oh, this probably didn't like they had no reason really to not believe you. Yet, if they had an experience that you were now causing them bubbling up inside themselves, it's like it's a lot easier to just dismiss you and dismiss their own experience or somebody that they know at the same time. I find a lot of comfort in not taking things personally when people don't believe me because there's really no reason for people to not believe me other than something like that. Who knows? You know, I mean, there's many reasons that I guess it could be, but yeah. So your dad, your dad had the same reaction. And then yeah. did you ever, he didn't, he never brought it up with you or. No, they really, um, they have not talked about it since that day. I have tried to bring it up in terms of like, I, I had to really, when I first moved to, um, Kansas city, which is where I live now, I was really struggling again with my mental health, my college boyfriend and I, who we started dating right after this incident, right after I was raped. And I did tell him about it. And he was very understanding um, at the time. He helped me work through kind of that initial trauma from it, which was really helpful for him and definitely not something he was comfortable with. What was helpful about what he did for you in that time? I think just, I mean, truly just not leaving when I told him, not being afraid of the trauma, which is really what I thought was going to happen. This is a great, you know, I have no animosity towards this man. He's a really great, we were a horrible couple, but he's a great guy. You know, he really tried (laughs) his best to support. Yeah. He tried his best to support me and he just couldn't offer me the support that I needed. And I will acknowledge that I am a handful. I've been through enough that I'm kind of a handful. I've got, I've got some (laughs) things that I deal with. Yeah. Um, um, props to my current boyfriend. He's the best. He, he, <laughs> he tries so hard. He's awesome. But you know, I, I hold no animosity towards him. He just, but he didn't leave. And for someone who had just been told that not told, but you know, told by someone's actions that you are an object and you mean nothing. And that's how I felt. And for, for this man to not leave me and to not cast me aside and to kind of put me in a position where I could have some power back in my life again. I mean, that was really special and that helped me grow a lot from it. And then we broke up. There was no chance of us getting back together. And you know, that was, I moved away, I moved here. And when I got here, that trauma started to reemerge and it started to reemerge in ways that I really, I had an experience because I'd been in a relationship. I didn't really see this, but I started really seeking physical attention instead of anything else. I kind of equated the two because in my mind, the only way that I was worth something was that someone would sleep with me. 
Mm. That was the only way that I was going to be worth something to myself, to someone else. And if I couldn't offer that, then I was as good as gone. I was not worth that time. And so I used that to try and find meaning in relationships or meaning in things that felt like relationships or could have been relationships, whatever you want to call that. And that really ate away at me. And so I, I kind of broached the subject with my parents again, because it was really, really eating away at me at this point. And I said, like, I really want to talk to someone about this. I really would like to go back to therapy. But at the time I was working part-time, I was in graduate school. I needed, you know, I wasn't really in a position to pay a lot for therapy. And I asked if, you know, if I could have some help for that. And they were very not, they were not supportive of it. Um, I, I remember distinctly my dad saying that, you know, sometimes your brain is just broken and that, oh, that about, oh, that about killed mm. me. That really, yeah. oh, when he told me that, I internalized that. And I would use that word to describe myself for a very long time. Broken? Um, broken, absolutely. Yeah. Broken. And I, I, uh, hello, sorry, my cat is staring at me. I think she wants to be in the podcast. Oh, feel free to put her in the shot. What <laughs> up, cat? Um, <laughs> so, oh. yeah, she's great. She's my emotional support snuggle. So when I went to him, and when I went to my mom, it was very like, well, this is just how you are. Nothing's going to fix it. They're, they're a little bit mistrusting of, for example, the psychiatric field, which I can understand why. Um, it's a very, it, it seems like a very money-driven field at times. You see a lot of people on wrong medications or, or people that can't even access their medication because of monetary issues. Um, so they're a little, they were always very skeptical of that. And, and I can see where that skepticism comes from, but I was looking for someone to talk to. Yeah. I, I just, I wanted someone to be able to have a conversation with, cause I knew I couldn't talk to them. And so eventually I picked up another job. So at that point I was working two different jobs. I was working in restaurants, which is a whole other traumatic toll on your <laughs> mental well-being. So I was in graduate school full-time. I had these two jobs and I was working to try and be able to go and see a therapist so that I could talk to someone. And then I finally got into the therapist and I couldn't talk about it. Really? I couldn't even do it. I couldn't bring it up. And I would talk about everything else except for that. And I, Interesting. I don't, it really hasn't been until I sent you the submission to be on the podcast that I was finally starting to feel more comfortable talking about it. And that's kind of part of why I wanted to be on this, be on this podcast was to actually have practice talking about how this had made me feel for so long. Yeah. And just even really realizing what happened mm -hmm. and what the aftermath of that is. And in the meantime, I had still been, you know, looking for partners or relationships or something to try and feel something and always with um, sex being like the forefront of it. Like, well, if this isn't happening, then I'm worthless and I'm not doing the right thing in this relationship. And that's why people leave. That's a very common thing associated with sexual trauma is hypersexuality. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, like before you were raped, how would you compare your sexuality between before and after? I think I'd, I'd always been more of a sexual person. I really, I of course like enjoyed it, but it wasn't like I was constantly seeking that for validation. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, prior to, prior to being raped, of course it was fun, but it was never 
something that I needed to feel worth in my life. It was a perk and it was fun, but it was never something that defined my well-being and it was never something that defined whether I was doing a good job or whether I was mm. a good asset or a good, you know, whatever, being a good person. Um, yeah. I really, it, it still takes me aback when I think about how much worth I have put into literally just being able to sleep with someone mm. and being there for them. I mean, that it sounds, it sounds so odd to me saying it out loud, but it's true. I mean, that's exactly what I did is that I was looking for partner after partner after partner or the same par- or whoever, just to try and feel something, mm-hmm. to try and feel wanted. I, people ask me the same thing. Like, like, you know, you were molested. Like, does that mean you're like, are you like super into sex? And like, I, I am for sure. I love sex. I, I don't know if that's because I was molested or not, but it's, it definitely put sex on my radar much more, much sooner than most people experience it. But I've, I've never really sort of figured that out because I definitely am a sexual person and it's hard to pinpoint if that's because of, you know, what happened to me when I was a kid or if I just like it, like I'm surprised that people who weren't raped or molested aren't just like as stoked about sex as maybe <laughs> we are. I don't know. I know. See, that was always my question. I, and like, cause anyone who hasn't had that same trauma that I would like suggest it. And they're kind of looking at me like we do this all the time. Like, don't you want to break? And I like stopped dead in my tracks. And I'm like, no, what? Like, what do you mean a break? What do you mean? But it's yeah. also like, when it's the only thing that's giving you that validation, how could you want to break from it? Mm-hmm. How could yeah. you want to break from the only thing? It's more thing, than sex, yeah. Yeah, from the only thing that really makes you feel good or feel something. Like, you know, that's why people do drugs. That's why people drink. Totally. Is they're looking to feel good. And they're looking for that one thing that makes them feel good. So when you, when you would have sex with somebody, it was sort of an insatiable feeling, the need for validation. I'm curious, like how long would that last? Did you have any sort of relief after you would have sex or was it just like, ah, like this is not, you know, was it sort of just trying to fill an endless void? You know, a little of both, like there were times, and, and I think the times when I actually felt sort of this, like, okay, I actually feel satisfied. I actually feel really like release and relief and happiness from this. I, those are the times that would hurt the most in terms Mm. of like the emotion, because suddenly there was this added component to it where suddenly I cared. And this person, this partner made me feel better. And I got that feeling that I was looking for. And then if that is taken away for whatever reason, you break up, it was, it was one night, whatever, whatever the reason is, and they go away. It hurts so much more. So you almost don't want it to do that Mm. because you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to end up feeling worse. And that I think, and that's why I've always, not always, but in the past really three years that I've been here, why breakups have always been so hard for me because it's always been, I let my guard down enough to let someone in, share that trauma with them, share that experience and share why and start to share kind of why sex has that feeling to it. And then to have them leave is this just gut wrenching. Oh, I really was just an object to you. Mm-hmm. You feel, it feels almost like you've been lied to, even though you haven't been, yeah. I'm not 
sit here and say these guys are terrible. Well, some of them are, but, <laughs> but you know, I'm not going to sit here and vilify them for that. Yeah. That's not the reason that they were not good people if they weren't good people. Yeah. I think that's wise to do. It's easy to just sort of point fingers and, and be like, well, the, everybody else is the, is the problem. And rather than being like, this might be an opportunity to like look more internally at like, why am I responding this way? And why do I, like it's more of an opportunity to like grow and like acknowledge like your own issues that have not been resolved rather than so many people <laughs> just blame everybody else for everything. And it seems to so rarely be actually productive. Oh man, but it's so easy to do. Yeah, it of course. So, it's the easiest so thing to do. easy to blame other people for when you're the one that has the problem because I've totally done that too. Oh, me too. I still yeah, do. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, yeah. it's so much easier. Um, yeah. And then you realize like taking, when you take responsibility, how much growth you're capable of. And that I think is honestly what has given me the most power in probably the past year is taking responsibility for my own actions and inactions, as well as just the way my brain is. I can learn what responds better or what it responds to better, what it doesn't respond to. I can learn situationally what I know is going to trigger something for me. And when you start taking responsibility, you allow yourself the chance to understand yourself. Yeah. Yeah. When you were going to therapy, did you ever, did you ever get to a point where you were able to talk about it? Um, yes. Very briefly. You know, it's funny. I, I saw this woman for the almost a year and what ended up being the, the point of me being able to go talk to her was actually the death of a friend. And that was my first point of going to see her. And so at first I was like, yes, great excuse. We can talk about grief instead. And I yeah. don't have to talk about this. So that was the first reason that I even went and I saw her. And it took me a year of consistently seeing this person before I finally was able to talk about it. And then we didn't ever talk about it again. We talked about it once and it never got brought back up. And in my mind, I kept thinking, please, like, just, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to bring it up. Why can't you bring it up? Why can't mm. you be the one to like, have me talk about it? Because I'm not going to bring it up on my own. I wonder if that's a result of the times that you had brought it up with your family and other people like not being believed. And you just sort of very quickly adjust to like, well, I don't, if I bring this up, this is what happens. So if you bring it up, maybe then at least I know that you want to talk about it. Totally valid. Honestly, that's not something that I, have, I had really even considered. And now that you're bringing it up, I mean, that makes, makes a lot of sense because it always felt like every time that I brought something up, it would get either not, I mean, not used against me. That's the wrong way to put it, but it was something that was a, a check mark against me. Yeah. Kind of though. I mean, it's, it's it does seem like what it was to an extent for sure. Yeah. So I, I do wonder if that's kind of the reason behind that, behind that. That's a really, really good point, actually, man. I For got, sure. I got more stuff to think about now. <laughs> <laughs> Every conversation that, that you have about the experiences that you've had, um, particularly with people that have been through something similar, it's like, it just, you know, even hearing, your story, like it, new thoughts come into your head that you haven't had before. And, you know, just earlier in this conversation, you were talking about how your first boyfriend, after you were raped, you were so thankful for him because he didn't leave you when you told him. And <laughs> part of, I, I had a long-term girlfriend in, in high school and uh, she, I didn't tell her about what happened to me for a, a while. And then when I eventually did, she was like, well, why didn't you tell me? And not like shitty about it, but um, I sort of realized 
recently that, you know, a big part of it was that I thought that she would be like, you let a guy do that to you for two years. Like, are you into girls even like, do you like we create all of the responses that people are going to have to us speaking up. And then it's like, how could you possibly speak up if that what you're presuming will happen is like <laughs> my girlfriend's going to break up with me. You know, it's tough because like sometimes when you speak up, you do run into people that respond the way that you thought and, and sometimes even worse. But I think that, generally speaking, what you think will happen is far worse than what actually happens. And eventually you will find people that do believe you. And that feeling is what makes all of the other experiences with people not believing you totally worth it. There are people that know what you've been through and, and, and can empathize with you and will believe you. You just have to keep speaking up until it happens. But it's just <laughs> the reason I was saying all this is because I was thinking about that with my ex-girlfriend, the, why I didn't tell her for a while recently. And, and uh, you saying that about your boyfriend made me realize like I felt the same way. It, was, it meant so much to me to have her not be affected, like have her interest in me not be affected at all based mm-hmm. on what what had happened that was a big moment i think in terms of like confidence talking about it these conversations are so dope to have in that way <laughs> you just never know like what's gonna happen and then what's gonna cause you to remember things you never really talked about it after that i'm kind of surprised that the therapist didn't bring it up again i mean i guess her rationale was that you would want to you would bring it up when you want to and she didn't want to force it which is like totally fair you went to her for a year and then that ended and then were you ever talking about this with anybody else at that point? At that point, no. You know, I had told anytime I had a more serious boyfriend, I would tell that person at some point, not immediately, because that's not the first thing you bring up on a date. You're like, hey, by the way, when I was 21, I was raped. You don't just like start a conversation. Like that. <laughs> that's, like the, that's like the worst John Mulaney style opener you could ever think of. That's horrible. And, um, not, and, I, and I totally empathize with you there. I just have to include this because literally last night I went on a first date and within 10 minutes of the conversation, we were talking about that I had been molested and her dad died when she was 10. So it was like, it can be, it totally is situational and it completely depends on what's happening in the conversation. It's definitely tough to just cold open, drop the bomb, like right, you know, before the appetizers come. But I I feel like as you continue to talk about it, and especially like now doing this podcast and like TikToks and stuff, I feel like you you get to a point where it's, I mean, I, I get excited to talk about it because I know now that it's like, I can talk about it in a way that will make people feel okay. I, you know, in the past, whenever I would bring it up, it would be like, oh my God, whoever I'm talking to would be like, ah, that's the worst thing that's ever happened. Like, I'm so sorry, you know, all this stuff. And now having talked about it a lot, it's like, hey, I can present this information in a way that you know that I'm okay. And that makes you okay to listen to it. It's definitely directly related to how much time you spend talking about it and reflecting on it. So I, I think that it can certainly get to a point where, where you uh, don't mind when it comes up. And then it just comes up naturally and it's not something that you're sort of dreading. I mean, that does kind of segue though into when I think about my current relationship, which is truly the healthiest relationship I think I've ever been in. Not even think I know. Um, That's awesome. But that when you say, you know, this idea of dreading bringing things up, this is also the first time where I have not felt that sense of dread with bringing up trauma. I'm not afraid to bring these things to light out of fear that this person is going to leave. Having that kind of confidence is something that's very strange for me. 
But that being said, I do still struggle with like the valuation of sex. And that's had to be a conversation with him. He said, you know, I understand, I can, you know, I can empathize why you're doing this. I'm never going to understand. I'm never going to truly get it, but you can't put that kind of value on sex because that's not fair to me. And more so that's not fair to you and who you are. Mm. He looks at me, he goes, you know, you are so much more than that to me. And so there's this confidence there that I have not experienced probably ever, at least to this extent, Mm -hmm. which has been a world of a difference. And a lot of it is him. But I also know that I could not be successful in this relationship if I had not taken this past year to really reflect on that and figure out what is going on and figure out what growth I can do and then taking responsibility for my own actions instead of blaming others. Going back to that blame game because it's so much easier to blame everyone else, especially yeah. when you, I have trauma. I had a traumatic experience. <laughs> Woe is, you know, it, it becomes this less of this woe is me and more of, yeah, that was really not good. But here is what I can do now. Yeah, absolutely. And the sex is probably much better. Oh, yeah, um, so much better. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very different experience with sex and everything. Whenever you're doing something to try to acquire some specific outcome, it's like you're not really engaged in what's actually happening. Like, and I imagine that your boyfriend, part of why he was like, Hey, this isn't really fair. It's not fair to you. And it's not fair to me is because he was probably thinking to himself, like, does she even want to have sex with me or does she want to feel validated? Um, and you know, it's, it totally, you can take the way that these experiences affect you. You can, perceive them however you want as this horrible thing that's I'm never going to be able to recover from this. I'm never going to get the validation that I need. Or it's you can view it as an opportunity to like completely heal yourself and recognize like this is I'm doing this for a reason. And the way that these things affect you, it's like it can either be a stepping stone to growing into the person that you maybe are supposed to be or could be if you wanted to be, or it can be a setback and you can dwell and sort of self-pity and how did this happen to me? Why didn't, you know, nobody understands, et cetera. And I feel like shifting that perspective, uh, that, that perception of the things that have happened to you to an opportunity to grow is a really helpful mindset shift in terms of dealing with these things. 100%. The level of self-destruction that comes from the blame game and comes from, you know, it's okay to pity yourself. It really is. It's okay sure. to say, you know what, this sucked. I'm having a bad day. It's a, Or like, this is a, you know, this was a terrible month. This was a terrible event. It's okay to have that self-pity. But when it gets to the point that it eats you alive, and that's kind of where it was starting to get me, is that truly the only thing, the only things that I felt were self-loathing and pity for myself. And that mindset led me to so many situations that I, I didn't want to be part of. And I would wake up and I would say, why, yeah. why did I do that? Why am I like this? And I couldn't say no. And the next night I would do the same thing, you know, yeah. I, this cycle again, looking for something to feel anything that wasn't self-loathing and pity, regardless of how superficial it was. You just, I just wanted to feel something, but the minute I started to try and work away from that. And honestly, being in that first shutdown, because I was finishing up my graduate degree at the time, that was the biggest part of the mountain to climb was that suddenly I was truly alone. Being able to recognize what sort of things were going to actually make me feel better or worse 
took a lot of really intense self-reflection, which is what I needed to do because I was not thinking about myself. I was thinking about everyone else and ignoring all of my own feelings. Why do you ever want to think about your feelings? That's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I felt the same way about quarantine because I was living alone during that too. And it was like, you know, just pure isolation. And uh, if you perceive it as how horrible (laughs) and how, you know, this is the worst thing ever, then that's probably what your experience is going to be like. But what helped me a lot was viewing this as an opportunity to actually spend the most time alone with myself that I've ever had and probably ever will have. It's unlikely. I mean, knock on wood, hopefully we don't think I'll do something like that again, but it's just a matter of perspective. I I really, I feel like the older I get, the more I feel like that with every experience that you have in life. It's totally up to you on how you want to react to it and perceive it. Your trauma never goes away. You just kind of learn to go through life with it. It's going to be with you no matter what. It's, it's part of your life. It doesn't define your life, but it's still part of you and it's part of your experience and there's no reason to brush it off. It, it's important to be able to talk about it and it's important to be able to recognize it because it's going to be there. Yeah. Maybe it'll get smaller. Maybe at one point it's a huge weight. It likely will be for a long time, but at some point it's going to be like your ID. You just toss it in your purse and you walk out the door. It's there. (laughs) You know it's there. You can't forget it. It's a little less of a burden. You know, clearly this has been like a super helpful time for you and finding this new relationship and, and everything has been so beneficial. And I'm just curious, like what has helped you the most in terms of healing I think a lot of things have helped different aspects of it. I think therapy did help. You know, therapy gave me an outlet and maybe the vocabulary to talk about how I was feeling, which is not some, I was not raised to talk about how I was feeling. And so therapy gave me a chance to practice talking about how I was feeling so that, you know, whatever was going on, I could communicate that more effectively. So that I want to highlight as definitely being something that has helped with that. Just because I didn't talk about this particular event doesn't mean that it isn't an incredibly helpful tool for me. With that, I think allowing myself to hurt and allowing myself to grieve what happened because it did take a lot away from me and I lost a lot of my life to it. Um, And the thing that helped me the most was accepting that this is just how it is. You can say what if all you want, but accepting the trauma and learning to move with it and still being able to explore like emotionally, how do I communicate how this is making me feel or, or what it has done to either hinder or help me. I think that's been the most helpful is not hiding it, but really, you know, being honest with myself that it happened, accepting that it happened. I talk about grief a lot. A lot of my, my perspective has been up on grief because you kind of lose something and you, with, with a lot of different things, you can use that model as a way to talk about anything. If you're thinking about a breakup, if you're thinking about being raped, if you're thinking about at really any sort of traumatic event, there's grief involved and being able to allow myself to grieve those events has been very helpful. Couldn't agree more. Another thing I wanted to ask you that just sort of came to mind was because I've spoken with people that don't remember specifically what happened to them uh, as a result of drinking as well. And I'm curious, do you think that not remembering in some ways made it worse or not as bad? I feel like because of all the hypotheticals that we run through in our head about, for example, how people are going to react to hearing about what happened to us, I can imagine that you also 
created a number of scenarios in your head about what actually happened that night. Because obviously around trauma, people have so many different memory issues. And I, I feel like maybe we create even worse scenarios that might've even happened just because we don't remember, or maybe the other way around. How do you think not remembering the experience impacted you? You know, there are days where I wish I knew exactly what happened. I am very much, I I like knowing what's going on around me. I like being able to have control over my environment, whether that's within my job or whether that's within my apartment. I like, you know, being able to, I'm not saying I'm a, you know, a neat freak or anything like that, but I like being able to know what's going on around me. And so by not knowing, I have absolutely no control over that. I have no control over his side of the story. And and honestly, I really barely have control over mine because there is a large chunk of it that is not there. Yeah. Like you said, with the hypotheticals, you play them over and over. Like, well, what if this happened? Did this happen instead? What if it was, you know, why didn't anyone say anything? Why didn't anyone stop him? But I also think that if I knew exactly what happened, I I almost wonder if it would be worse. Mm Mm-hmm. Because suddenly then you know the whole story and you know what this person did. Yeah. And because, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle of knowing a lot of the things that happened and then also not remembering a lot of it. And I think both ways suck. And there's definitely not an ideal uh, amount of memory to have around these experiences. But it just made me think about like having dealt with anxiety and hypotheticals. And it just makes me it made me wonder, like, if there was a time where, for example, the guy who molested me had drugged me, maybe that would be even worse in my head because it's like anything could have happened. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? It's just, it's interesting to think about. I also wanted to ask you, what is your relationship with your parents like now? Um, better. It took a long time. I, I want to preface by saying I love my parents very much. They've given me a lot and I am incredibly thankful for them, but there are still, even to this day, things that I cannot talk to them about. You know, our relationship, for as much as I love them and for as much as they love me, it is and has to remain more superficial because we are just not on the same wavelength when it comes to the deeper meanings of our emotions. Um, And I mentioned this earlier, I was not raised to feel my emotions. We don't really talk about feelings. You, you know, you make a joke and then you move on. Mm -hmm. Because of that, whenever I have tried to involve them more deeply into emotional parts of my life, I've really been met with kind of a brick wall this lack of willingness to talk about them, which is okay because that's given me the opportunity to build those emotional relationships with other people and yourself and myself. Absolutely. It's a great point, but you know, I love my parents. We do have a more superficial relationship, but I, but I still know that if I needed their help, I know that they would help me regardless of whether they, they understood or not. I think that has been the biggest change is that I have a sense of trust for them after all this time that took a long time to build back up because after that first, that, that level of judgment that I received from them the first time, and then kind of the shutting down of emotions, it's hard to trust someone after that. Um, But creating a more superficial relationship with them has given me that trust back because I know I can send my mom a house on Zillow and we will either build it up or tear it apart. That woman is so judgmental when it comes to houses, or I can send my dad something from Reddit. I know I am not going to be able to talk about psychology or things that are go on to a deep, 
deeper level. Yeah. So for now, I'm satisfied having just a more superficial relationship with them. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point, which is that you don't need anyone's confirmation or to believe you in order to heal. There's nobody that you need to convince. And I think that letting go of like, you know, that was one of the first things that I dealt with because we went to trial and obviously the guy, you know, didn't get convicted. So immediately I'm like, oh, wow, there are people that are not going to believe me about this experience. And that was hard for a long time. And then I think that there's a bunch of freedom that comes from not needing everybody to believe you in order to feel okay about what happened or not okay about what happened, but like, okay with yourself. You don't need anybody's belief in order to feel validated in what happened to you. And that can allow for these new sort of relationships to, to blossom. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, that's great that you're able to, to salvage the relationship and just have it morph into something that is, is different and not necessarily better or worse, but just different. Things change. And um, maybe there will come a day where you find out why they didn't believe you. And I'm very sure it will have nothing to do with you. <laughs> I, yeah, no, that's a great, you, that's such a good point that, and that was something that I ate, ate away at me for a long time too, was that whole people not believing. Cause I wanted people so desperately to believe me. And I realized even just sitting here talking with you, how many people really did believe me, mm-hmm. you know, I, I realizing and for, you know, the two people that didn't believe me, of course, their validation meant so much to me and I didn't get it. And so because of that, I, I, I know, and I will totally own up to this, but I've definitely projected that lack of belief onto either partners or friends. You know, I'll be the first to admit my own toxicity. I, I for sure will. And I know that that relationship and that lack of validation has definitely caused some problems with the projection of emotions onto people and my own projection of, well, my parents didn't believe me. So why, why would you, mm. why would you, the two people that love me the most in the world, you know, do, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm doing air quotes, you know, the two people who love me most in the world, they didn't believe me. So why the fuck would you? Right. Although I will say toxicity is a lot less toxic when you're aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> totally changes like (laughs) self-awareness like it's it's hard to it's hard to heal and grow from something that you're not aware of admitting i was toxic was like the best thing that i could have done for myself because now (laughs) i'm still toxic sometimes but at least i know about it at least i know at least i know that i'm being not great and i can fix it a toxicity or you know you were talking about um projection of emotions like mm-hmm. awareness of how you're behaving and the reason that you're behaving that way is like it's so important for making any sort of changes to who you are so i think that that's that's awesome <laughs> you know it's it's i'm really happy to hear that you're at this point i just wanted to ask you how, what advice would you give to somebody who's hoping to get to the point that you're at now who's been through something similar I think my advice needs to be taken with a grain of salt because everyone's reaction to their trauma is going to be different, regardless of whether your the symptoms of your trauma look similar, the way your brain processes things is going to be different. But the advice that I would like to give is um, to let yourself be sad and to let yourself feel the emotions that maybe you didn't want to feel before and to really dive into those emotions because for a lot of people that's really hard for myself included it's very hard even to this day to dive into those deeper emotions and really admit that yes i felt this way i am feeling this way 
And I don't want to feel this way in the future. And then on top of that, finding a way to be able to talk about it. It's one thing to process and one thing to realize how you feel. And it's another thing to be able to verbalize it, but finding someone who is in a place where they can hear those emotions from you. Of course, my recommendation is a therapist. It's hard to kind of put that amount of trauma on a friend to begin with, especially when you're just figuring out how to talk about something mm. like this. Um, but first letting yourself feel and then learning how to talk about it is my biggest piece of advice, I think. I totally agree with that. Allowing yourself to feel whatever feelings come up. As soon as you feel like you can't feel something, it's like that's probably the thing that you need to feel the most. Hannah, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a really awesome conversation and it's really encouraging to see the growth that you've done. And I'm very grateful to have had you on the podcast today. This has been such an awesome experience getting to talk with you and getting to really dive into these topics that you know, we don't always talk about and, and really getting a chance to be part of this has been very, really special for me. So I want to thank you for having me on. And um, this has just been an amazing experience. So thank you. Yeah, Yo, you're so welcome. Couldn't be more of a mutual feeling. Thank you for doing this. And uh, we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely.